I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to have Ada Limon with me today. We, um, we are sisters in pug ownership, and, and that is really something. <laughs> Ada is the author of The Hurting Kind, as well as five other collections of poems. These include most re- recently, The Carrying and Bright Dead Things. She's a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and American Poetry Review, among others. She's the new host of American Public Media's weekday poetry podcast, The Slowdown. Born and raised in California, she now lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Hi, Ada. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Ada, every time I read your work, it makes me want to follow your lead and leave the city. (laughs) (laughs) I'm creating a impulse for exodus. (laughs) Absolutely. You could just... um, stick a uh, goodbye to all that on on your poetry collection and that's it. Yeah, isn't that funny? I love New York and it's one of those, you know, I think it's my favorite city in the world, but I feel like there's, um, I don't think I could do what I do if I was living in New York. Um, And there's so many reasons for that. (laughs) but it is, I will, I will maintain it is my favorite city. And every time I get off the plane, JFK, LaGuardia, I'm like home. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the first things, if if you open the collection and, and look at the first poem, one of the things you couldn't do in in New York city probably is um, be delighted by a groundhog. I love this because that's what I come to expect from you, like finding joy in the small things. Tell me, tell me, I was going to say, tell me how to do that. (laughs) I kind of love that. (laughs) 
to just um listeners should know that um last night we got the news that roe v wade was likely to be overturned so mm-hmm. <laughs> we're looking for any little um uh, any little safety net any little any little ribbon of hope we can hang mm-hmm. on to mm-hmm. yeah little lifeboats yeah and and i feel like that is why I so often turn to your poetry. You have, of course, a sort of semi-viral poem, would you say, about how wonderful it is for for spring to arrive. Oh, (laughs) right. Um, Instructions on not giving up. Yeah, that, that was a surprising poem. Every time I see it shared, I'm like, wow. And it for me, it was such a simple poem. Um, I mean, it was a true experience I had. I, and I came in and I wrote it fairly uh, quickly and it took me a long time to edit, but like the first draft came out um, fairly quickly. Um, but yeah, a lot of people share that poem about spring. I love that. And and so in The Hurting Kind, we, we see more of nature through your eyes. Um, and not just the beauty of nature, but the indifference of nature. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, one of the things I've been really interested in lately, and you know, I don't know how you are, but I know for me, a question comes up and then I, it's, then it appears again and again, like you ask yourself it and then you go, oh, this is something that is clearly circling my mind, my body, my world. Um, And this particular question was about what it was to be in the world, not just as the person that witnesses, but also as an animal being um, that is witnessed and is a part of something. Um, And that was really sort of essential to, I think, putting together the collection and putting together the book as a whole Mm -hmm. with that idea of connectedness, but not always being the person that is the watcher, but being aware that I was part of something and that I was being watched and being witnessed. Um, And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that these poems have been written over the last, you know, four to five years. Um, And of course, some of these poems uh, directly responded and are in conversation with the pandemic and that kind of deep looking that the isolation gave me, um, which was also a feeling of like, how do I build a community when even neighbors aren't taking walks together? And, you know, there is sort of no way to reach out and feel touched and feel bonded to someone else. So I think a lot of that was figuring out what it was to be a part of nature but then also really understanding that at the sort of the mystery of being alive is that we will never fully understand what it is that's going on in the animal mind. I can never look at a tree and say, oh, I know exactly what that tree name, that's the name of that tree is because that tree may have like some other idea of what its name is. <laughs> um, that sounds a little unhinged, but I think that there is a sort of amount of the mystery of it all. And I feel like the more 
I age and the more I sort of surrender to this life and hopefully to an idea of longevity, um, I am more and more at sea in terms of what it is we just don't know about one another. And um, I think this book explores that a little bit. I love that. And, and, and you're very clear in this collection that naming things is, is a first step. It's not the final one, but I, I, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that during the pandemic, you got really into birding Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what is it called when you're interested in trees? (laughs) Well, there's, yeah, (laughs) I was going to say it's both the fauna and the flora. Uh Uh-huh. 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 Um, Tell me a little bit about that. I, I especially love the poem about the magnificent frigate bird, which oh, yeah. what a name. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I've always been interested in birds, but I think that, um, and I have always loved identifying them and knowing the names of them, but I do think it was, uh, it deepened, of course, during the pandemic, I was keeping that feeder full all the time. In mm-hmm. fact, it's still, It's still um, full right now. And we have this amazing, um, I don't know if you get these, you might, um, but the migratory birds, the rose-breasted grosbeak um, is coming through right now and they'll only be here for a few days. And it's so fun because they're so extraordinary. They're, you know, um, they're in the cardinal family, but they're black, they have white chests and then, um, and then a really, really like really bright red um, chest. So it's like this, you know, black, red, and white flash you see everywhere. Um, and they come in their partners. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I've always been interested in it, but during the pandemic, I think it did deepen. I think it, I don't want to say it became a little more desperate, but I do think there was a sort of clinging to anything one could find that was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, when I can do nothing, I fill the feeder kind of thing, you know? And, um, and that, you know, at one point Lucas laughed because I bought a, um, this, my, Lucas is my husband. Um, I bought a, a sort of, um, aluminum container for all the bird seed and I sort of lug it out to fill the feeder. And I also have a VIP feeder and a suet and a hummingbird feeder. And, um, he was, he, he was laughing. He's like, you're, it's like, you're a bird farmer. Cause I would just like <laughs> lug out all the speed, um, <laughs> for pure pleasure, for pure pleasure. That's that's wonderful, though. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And yeah, the pandemic is so terrible and strange because we're just still in it. Yeah, 100%. People, people no matter what people say, yeah. you have this great poem about the use of the word lover coming back mm. and how maybe maybe things yeah. can also return to normal in in some fucking way <laughs> yeah yeah I think there is that sort of I remember when I wrote that poem and the and the friend that wrote me that note and and it, she said the word lover and I thought oh lover like are we going to have lovers, you know, are like people going to be able to have lovers again? I mean, I know, I know that that was happening during the pandemic. I'm not naive, but I do think there was a certain <laughs> level in which everything was so, it felt so dangerous. Um, and, you know, I know people that were trying to date and trying to, and I just was like, I, I was amazed by them. Um, really the courage of that. Uh, and I feel like I was, uh, just the idea of that word felt almost antiquated. I mean, it feels antiquated a little bit anyway, but then you added, you know, the three, three years of pandemic and that isolation and the social distancing and the real fear that many of us had of, for not just our own bodies, but for our loved ones. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to explore that. And, um, it felt it, that for me, that was a, such a freeing poem because it allowed me to have a little hope. I, you know, and, you know, like most people, I careen back and forth. Um, I'm lucky if I can write myself into sort of a more hopeful place. And sometimes I can't, you know, right. it depends on the, uh, the day, the hour, the minute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love the poetry in your book about having been through, let's say a bad relationship <laughs> and getting to a place where one, you're happy where you are now mm. and two, you realize it's, it kind of wasn't about that relationship as a whole. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I feel like there's a, a, there's some ways of, you know, revisiting one of the, you know, true joys of poetry is kind of going back into, into your own personal history and exploring it and, and mining it. And also I think really essentially um, reframing it. And I think that's important um, for me just as a human being sometimes to remember what it is to perhaps be in something that was more toxic or traumatic or whatever. And then also move into something about like, oh, how do I also move into a gratitude for where I am now and what that taught me and what I could have, you know, asked for or returned to, et cetera. But yeah, I think reframing is really important to me in my life. And, and so it shows up in my work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, I, I, I love how you reframe for us. I don't know about if this is part of, of your life, but the idea of divorced parents mm. and how your step parents 
sound so lovely. Mm, yeah, they are. Yeah. And my stepmother who passed was really lovely as well. And my current stepmother is amazing. Yeah, um, very lucky. But, but it seems like an unconventional kind of family unit. Yeah, you know, it was funny. There was so much, um, there's so much strange languaging around divorce um, and, you know, blended households and all of these things. And yet it really is the norm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I am a little older than you, I think, but there's a certain level in which even as a kid, there was sort of the phrase, you know, a, a child of divorce, mm -hmm. you know, being a child of divorce, even as you say it, it sounds like really dramatic, you know? And I think there are so many people that were children of parents that stayed in their relationships that were toxic, abusive, terrible, um, full of negativity. And um, I feel like there needed to be a little of that reframing of what it was to have two people that chose happiness that shows that a new, a new life after, you know, their own marriage didn't work. And I think there's something so beautiful about that. And I feel like so often we have this weird insistence on maintaining certain structures, right? Like uh, these institutions that, oh, and you know, you're married, so you must stay married. It's like, well, what if, what if it, it doesn't work anymore, you know? And um, I, for one, think that there's a lot of power in separation. <laughs> I think there's a lot of uh, reclaiming of the self. And I saw that in both of my parents who, um, who really flourished afterwards in their relationships, became more of who they were. Um, and I see it now as they age and age in a way that I feel like is so beautiful. And I don't know, it's that kind of stuff that we often take for granted because our society is telling us one thing. And so we feel like we have to remember it that way. Um, and in that in particular poem that you mentioned, Joint Custody, it really is about, you know, what is it to, to, to think about it in a new way, um, to turn it on its head and to think of it as abundance, to think of it as freedom, um, and also to, to recognize what it did to me, you know, um, and that it, that's not necessarily causing, you know, harm, but instead giving this sort of different fluidity of what it was to move from house to house. And that's, to me, is the more sort of complicated, nuanced discussion about family that we often don't have. Like, we don't talk about the going back and forth. We don't talk about that kind of work. Um, instead, it seems to be more of a judgment call on the marriage itself or the failure of a marriage itself. And I, for one, have never, I've never really bought into that. Um, you know, to this day, if someone was unhappy, I'd be like, you know, there's an option. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that people shouldn't work and, and really support each other and, and, and be in the relationship that, that matters to them. But um, I think too often, especially women will stay, um, because society insists that they do. And I think if we're seeing anything, um, 
is that we really need to address our cultural issues with how we think of women and freedom and choice. Glad you brought it around <laughs> that way. <laughs> it's so hard not to talk about it today because of it's course really we're hard. in the midst of really just feels like um, a landmine has gone off and we're suddenly stuck with something we always knew was coming. Yeah. I was thinking last night about how sad I feel for my mom because her generation, like they know that they didn't solve everything, but they thought right. they had, you know, kind of gotten that. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing, you know, that when I was, I think I was 12 and there was a big pro-choice rally in San Francisco and my mom drove me down and we had our signs and, you know, we, I remember we would talk about choice and a woman's freedom over her own body. And I, I remember really feeling like there was something happening. Um, and this really feels like a paradigm shift that we're going to have to address on a major level. And I, I think the interesting thing is these shifts have been happening so consistently over the last, you know, 10 years or so that we keep being sort of pummeled by them, mm -hmm. but we're not really looking at the systems and structures of power in place that have been toxic and damaging for some time. So I think it's, you know, I'm hoping that eventually once we get over our grief, we can mobilize in a different way um, and maybe rethink about how we need to address it. And, and I like the theme, you have a poem called Against Nostalgia, mm. but yeah, it feels like when we are nostalgic for what came before, we're not nostalgic for what came before, before. <laughs> right. Right. I was just thinking about that the other day about like what we miss, you know, like often if I'm thinking about like, oh, I miss a certain thing or I miss, you know, I'm very rarely like nostalgic for like who I was, <laughs> you know, I'm like, yes. no, she was great. And she did, you know, as well as she could with the tools she had. <laughs> And now you have a bird feeder, so who cares? Yeah, but now it's like, I've got a, there's a little bit more of a, a groundedness going on that I appreciate. I love that. Tell me a little bit about Alejandra Pizarnik. Yeah. You know, um, Alejandra Pizarnik is a Pizarnik. fantastic writer from Argentina. And, um, you know, she her work is really interested in silences, which I find fascinating. Um, and so it's not just language, but all the space between, which of course is the work of poetry, but um, I've always loved her surreality um, and the space she creates for the dream world. She's very interested in the dark and light. Um, and uh, I believe, I want to say she, passed away in 1970s hmm, to 73, um, but was really an incredible writer and someone that I feel 
needs to have a little bit more um, recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, she was uh, born from a Russian Jewish family, um, lived in Argentina and um, committed suicide in 1972. And, and so you have both an epigraph, uh, which is just four lines of perfection. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. And then uh, a poem that you wrote in her honor. Is that fair to say? Yeah. um, She has a, she's quite a few lines that once you read or you have this sort of moment of, you know, oh, how how do I do that? And I spent a lot of time with her work, I think because they're so interested in silence um, during the pandemic um, and before, but um, and I'm going again to Argentina this summer, if all goes well. I hope so. <laughs> if, you know, if we can. But the, this is the, um, the wonderful epigraph, the, I ask for silence. Though it is late. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to read that again. I ask for silence. Though it's late, though it's night, and you are not able, sing as if nothing were wrong. Nothing is wrong. And that just, I read that during um, probably the 2020. And I remember thinking, and I had read it before, but you know how that happens. Like you read something before and then it hits you again. And um, I kept thinking like, what if I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now and I can only do this. And um, there was, there's such a surrender in that those lines about, you know, of course, feeling as if nothing is wrong, that as if, and then stating nothing is wrong. And it's this sort of, is it delusion? Is it true? Is this this wonderful tension between those two things? And she's a remarkable poet. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the title poem. Yeah. The hurting kind. I too. <laughs> I, I I I feel this profoundly. Tell me about starting out in the funeral home with with your mother. Like, how do you choose to to start there? Yeah. So the hurting kind is sort of an anchor poem of this book, you could call it, or a core poem of the book. And um, and it really is a, it's it's many things, I think, but uh, I, I'm really trying to get at um, the idea of how you can't sum up a life and also how complicated death is and how wild and surreal and um, confounding it is that a body is there and then the person is not there and what do we do with the bodies? And I mean, it's just, it's so wild to me. Um, And so it begins in the funeral home and um, this idea of like, you know, we dress our dead in suits and I mean, everything, it seems so bizarre. And um, it took me about almost, I think four years to finish that poem, maybe, maybe three years, but I couldn't, I could figure my way in because starting there and figuring it, this idea of like, okay, here I'm 
you know, first I'm on a plane and then I'm here and mm-hmm. time is just happening over, you know, in many different ways. And it's very interested in simultaneity. Um, and then at the same time, I couldn't figure out how to end the poem because I was just, I could, it really did feel like it could go on forever. And I think that when you're trying to honor a life or, you know, that is the case. And so I had to kind of surrender to that, but just be like, oh, right. It's just, it could go on forever. And so the the poem kind of ended in that way of recognizing that. Um, But it was a poem that took me a long time to write. And it also, to me, I think identified something about who I am as a person, who, um, who I wanted to honor and why. And I feel like there's so much credit given to bravery and courage and strength and power and resilience. And I wanted to honor tenderness and sentimentality and people who were able to be moved and touched and, you know, to be able to weep. Um, And how I always thought that was so powerful, that that was so, um, to me, almost like mystical that the great feelers of the world were out there and they were feeling. And, um, you know, I, I think that we don't give enough permission for people to do that. You know, we immediately go into, okay, this, this terrible thing happened, let's fight, let's mobilize. You know, sometimes we just need to sit and grieve and cry a little bit and be hurt. And I think that this poem in some ways is a little bit of a, the act of doing that, but also the act of remembering that there are so many people who have shown us that it's okay to do that. Um, And maybe couldn't always, and maybe couldn't do it in public, but maybe privately, you know, we're able to like show us that it was okay to cry or to feel deeply. Um, and my grandfather was one of those people. Love that. And I, I imagine that I am like most people when I turn to poetry, it is specifically to, to let out those feelings, to, mm. to, to feel um, in particular. Um, yeah, it allows for a space like that where we can kind of, I mean, first it allows for breath, you mm-hmm. know, there's that incredible Mary Oliver quote that I always think about, which is, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? I mean, every time I hear, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I breathe. Yes. And, um, And I think that poetry allows for breath and sometimes we're not breathing and then we breathe and it's like, oh, now, now I'm feeling, (laughs) you know, and sometimes we can handle it. And sometimes it's like, I mean, you know, you know, how many times I'm sure you've done this exact same thing where you've looked at a book of poems and thought, I am not, not today, Satan. (laughs) I am not (laughs) opening that book of poems because I can't go there. (laughs) 100%. The, uh, Second to last Sharon Olds was like, no. Oh, yeah. Can't. Yeah. Can't wish Incredible up. book, but yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so maybe this is a, a good place to end mm. because 
I do turn to you specifically to feel some hope. Hmm. How do you infuse hope into some of your poetry? Yeah. You know, oftentimes I'm writing what I'm experiencing and sometimes I'm also writing what I need. Um, but I also think it's real. Like I think, like I, I rarely sit down and think, you know, I'm going to write a hopeful poem because if I do that, it, sure, yeah, I will guarantee to be the saddest poem you've ever read. <laughs> you know, <It's> like, <laughs> I will be like, oh, hope, hope is, you know, no, it can't, it can't happen. So, but for me, I think if I'm looking deeply and if I'm paying attention and if I'm trying to honor the people in my life and the connections with nature, there is something there. There's something that's resilient and alive and wiser than us. And, um, you know, it's the earth. (laughs) And I think that, uh, I find myself when I find myself sort of spinning off into despair and, you know, the twin devils of depression and anxiety are getting to me like many of many of us alive in this moment. Um, I, I really do turn to the earth and, and, and even if it's looking just at an ant or something, and, and I find myself getting lost in that wonder and that idea that things are so connected and that we are part of this earth and what hubris to believe we're not. And I like to go back to the idea of reciprocity, that it's not just that we get something from it, but that we can also give back to it. And maybe what I can give back to it is attention. Um, or maybe it's the poems. But I, I do find hope there. Ada, thank you so much. Um, before we go, do you have any books you'd like to recommend for us? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, well, because we brought her up, I do love the, the book, um, Extracting the Stone of Madness, which is a collection of Alejandra Pizarnik poems. Um, and it, the translator is Yvette Siegert. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I'm really loving the brand new book, All the Flowers Kneeling by Paul Tran. Phenomenal. Um, let's see another one that I, oh, uh, you probably know this poet and adore them like I do, but the renunciations by Danica Kelly. Um, and then of course, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention customs by Somash Sharif, which is just phenomenal. Looking for that. Ada, thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I needed this today. I needed to chat about poems and hope and, you know, just be with a, a fellow um, hug, <laughs> hug sister. Hug sisters forever. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>